I understand that there is an ancient rabbinic blessing which actually can be uttered toward your friends, but also toward your enemies, which simply goes like this. May your life be interesting. (laughs) (laughs) We are far more in favor of calm, structured, structured and easy ways of living. Um, We dare say would move as far as we can away from those interesting parts to life. And yet we know that our lives, each of our lives, has been a part of experiencing those things that are interesting. I look out over this congregation today and I see many of you who have already lived an interesting experience, an existence that is very much something that would cause others to take pause before you. And it continues, this journey that we have. This testing of our faith is truly a tempering process. I'm just looking at my own self and thinking about those ways in which uh, God has continued to, to apply in certain places this sense of His presence to be known in the midst of trials and tribulations. Now, this great prophet, Elijah, was going through perhaps what he did not know. Of course, he was a great man of God, but he was up against Ahab. And that was a difficult time, not only for Israel, but in his life in particular, because he saw the dangers of this king that was leading the country in the wrong way. It is an epic story of tension um, by his alliances with uh, foreign powers. He came by way of a wife whose name is Jezebel. And Jezebel believed in other gods. She believed in Baal. She believed in Asherah. And in fact, as Ahab, wanting to be as supportive a presence in her life as he needed to be in this marriage relationship he allowed for a pole, a shrine to Asherah and to Baal to be raised in the holy city. Of course, he was not bidding that any of the residents of the city abandon Yahweh. But as far as Elijah saw, as, as he saw what was going on in their hearts, he thought, how can you share the title of the creator and redeemer of the universe with any other God? And so he engaged in this showdown, this showdown between Yahweh and Baal. And those who were of both sides gathered for the showdown. Two altars he proposed. One that would be built by those who were the priests gathered in that place to call upon Baal to set the altar alight from on high. And then those who were of Yahweh 
to do the same. First, in this Sunday school story that you are familiar with, perhaps, the priests of Baal set up the altar and they began to dance and to call on the names of their gods in order that the altar might be aflame. And with no success, the harder they tried, the more Elijah began to ridicule them. Where is your God? Is he just gone? Is he taking a break right now? Where is he? They even cut themselves in order to impress upon their deity that they were calling for this action right now. And yet nothing ever happened. And finally, Elijah said, let's have a go at it here. And so they began to establish the altar and they put the oxen on the altar for that sacrifice. He said, let's make it even a little more difficult. So let's build a trench around the altar. And then they poured jugs and jugs of water, 12 jugs of water on top of this altar with all of its wood. And then he began to pray that the Lord would make himself known. And miraculously, there is no explanation for it, but this altar leapt into flame and not only consumed the oxen, but also all of the water that had been poured onto the wood that had even gathered in the trenches. All of this was just this mist in the air. And the people, you can imagine, that were standing by to watch were just taken with Yahweh at that point. And they begin to bow down and to worship. Now, the priests of Baal were stunned and Elijah saw an opportunity and routed them, even killed them that day as many as he could lay his hands on. It is a tragic story in so many ways when we look at the violence of it. But to see what Elijah had on his heart, the freeing of Israel from the notion that there could be any other God as great as Yahweh was primary. I believe that even Ahab was at the point of worship himself because there's an interesting part of this story where Ahab returns to Jezebel finally and passes on the word to her, but she herself is inflamed to the point that she says that, that this day will not pass these next 24 hours, but what I will not kill Elijah. And so he set out in pursuit of this prophet. And he ran to the wilderness. Where else would he go? In fact, he fled there and he was absolutely spent. He collapsed on the ground for lack of anything to drink or eat. And he was at the point in his life of saying, just go ahead and put me out of my misery. Go ahead and take my life. And yet an angel of the Lord, it says, brought to him bread and water as sustenance to feed him. 
Jesus has always been invested in food. It's not just Methodists. Jesus has always been invested with the idea that people will be blessed if they can just eat. You know the stories of how he fed the 5,000, he fed the 4,000. Those are grand stories. He sat at table with his disciples. He sat at table with anybody who would sit down with him. My favorite story of Jesus is that calling and his post-resurrection days to the disciples who had gone back to the monotony of their work and were casting nets out on the Sea of Galilee. And there Jesus calls out to them to give instruction as to where to toss those nets. And Peter knew immediately that was Jesus that was on the shore. He dove into the water, swam to the shore. What was Jesus doing? He was fixing breakfast, salt fish for breakfast and served it up to Peter and the other disciples when they arrived. And then when he engaged Peter in conversation, you remember how the conversation went? He said, do you love me? And then Peter said, you know, I love you. And three times Jesus said to Peter, feed my sheep. You think Jesus wasn't invested in this? I've seen your casserole ministry. Y'all know what this is about. If you haven't had somebody on your doorstep bringing to you things to get you through grief and trouble, perhaps you've been the one that has been on somebody else's doorstep taking a dish by, oh, I don't need to come in. I just wanted to tell you that you're in my heart. I want you to know that I care about what's going on in your life right now. Here, have a casserole or have fried chicken. And remarkably, it does help. It helps. I don't have an explanation for it, but it helps. It really helps. It helps us to move on with life. It gets us to that place where we can sense this divine presence of God. It was a 40-day journey that Elijah got up and went on. After he got that little bit of bread and water, it set him on this path to go all the way to that mountain where Moses himself had stood to receive those Ten Commandments. And there he went into a cave on that mountain until the Spirit of God beckoned him to come out, come out. And when he came out, it was all, all breaking loose. This wind came in that was mighty enough to tear up the mountain itself. And when the wind was ceased, he looked around and there were these boulders that were rolling down the mountain because of the earthquake that was coming. And then just almost as if it was in the day of Moses, the mountain itself was alight with flame. You remember how Moses was led with the people through the wilderness with the fire and the smoke. And I can't help but think that God said, just wait here for a while, just wait here. Because in all of that spectacular signage from God, that's not what touched Elijah that day. But it was in the sheer silence that Elijah knew that God was present. 
Some of you have heard me tell the story of my best friend in high school who had 12 siblings. It was quite something to go over and visit at his house. Um, they had double beds stacked everywhere. They, uh, they had children running in and out the doors. I, it was wild. And this was a little house, a little frame house, just two bedrooms. Um, it was amazing that they could fit that many people in that small of a space. There was never any room for them all to sit down at the table together. They had to come in shifts, you know. Um, I learned later on that my friend and his fiance were involved in a terrible car accident on that highway that runs through Fort Benning just south of Columbus, Georgia. A tractor trailer met them head on. I still don't know exactly how this happened. But Ben and Evadne were sitting in the back seat of the car. Ben's parents were in the front seat and they were killed instantly. Ben and Evadne were hospitalized for a period of time at the end of which when they came to their senses, they realized there's still seven children at home and who is going to take care of them? And they decided to go ahead and get married and move into the house. Now, it's interesting because across the years, across the years, Ben's dad, I can still remember it. There was there was a pile of bricks in their front yard because whenever a building was being taken down in town, Ben's father would show up with his pickup and he would glean as many bricks as he could and bring them back and deposit them there in the hopes that someday they would be able to build a larger, more adequate space for the housing of that family. It was the children's job that they would clean the mortar off the bricks. And so they would peck away at those bricks on the weekends or when they were out of school, knowing that they too were contributing to the possibility that they would have a nicer house in the future someday. Of course, that didn't happen. The wreck occurred and uh, Ben and Evadne moved back into the house and began to care for these children that were there. And lo and behold, this miracle of miracles occurs when the family sees the town take up the job of building them a house. They came with loads and loads of bricks. And the, and the town built them a house that was adequate to house all of the children that were left and Ben and Evadne as well. And they made a living room and a dining room and a dining room table that whenever they all got together for holidays, that every single member of that family could put their knees under the same table. It was incredible mercy that was at work. I can imagine that through all of the angst 
and the nature of Ben's and Evadne's grief, that there was that point where they stood in sheer silence and looked at each other and knew what they had to do. And God supplied their need. You and I live with failing faith. The thing that so often happens is that we are crushed by the realness of the world in which we live. Things that happen to us that we might not have expected. And life gets far more complicated than we feel like we have the power to overcome. And it is the truth that we begin to crumble and our lives begin to fall apart because here, Elijah, this great prophet, has just done this spectacular thing, calling down the presence of God to set aflame the altar. And then he realizes that his life is immediately at stake and he takes off on the run and he is filled with depression. He is filled with despair. Fear rules his world. And it is only, it is only in that moment of silence, sheer silence, that he comes to know the divine presence of God once again. I had someone speak to me precious words that are insignificant in your hearing, but for me they were crucial. I was going through such a dark time a few years back and I shared it with a trusted friend and he said to me simply, bad times don't remain bad times, Bill. And it was enough truth to get me through. How is it with you? Does God extend his hand so that you can see it to get through the difficulties that you are encountering? Sue and I have been down in Broxton, Georgia, cleaning out her parents' house in order that they can put it on the market. If anybody here is ready to purchase a house in Broxton, Georgia, let me know and I'll pass the word on. It took us five days to go through all the stuff they had there. I mean, they had crates of stuff. When I was going through Sue's dad's uh, sermon notes, it just went on and on and on. We even came upon the sermon notes that he had put into a file the words that he spoke at our wedding, which was here in this place uh, 38 years ago. Interesting. One of the things that I found in going through his files was a little book by Norman Vincent Peale. Norman Vincent Peale was uh, mid-20th century, the equivalent of what Joel Osteen is in popularity today in the U.S., uh, minus the uh, focus that Joel brings to it of that prosperity kind of gospel. Norman Vincent Peale was most best known for a book that you may have heard about. You, you may have read it, in fact. It's called The Power of Positive Thinking. It was almost on every bookshelf, um, every family um, in America, mid-20th century. 
This little book is called Thought Conditioners, and it's by Norman Vincent Peale. And it basically is scripture with just a few comments that he has made in each case. But I want to read a few of these passages for us. This is Romans 8, 37 to 39. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Powerful stuff here. Listen to this one taken from 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. For God hath not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Another here, and this is interesting because it's almost a prophet speaking to a prophet because this comes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 31. And Elijah needs to hear this verse of scripture. They that wait, let me say that again. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. And they shall walk and not faint. But of course, the words that interest me most of all are the words of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ who spoke to his disciples just after he washed their feet at the supper table that evening, that fateful evening. And he spoke these words to them. He said, peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Norman Vincent Peale goes on to explain a little bit. He says, without a deep inner state of quietness, one becomes prey to tension, to worry, and to ill health. A song, a sonnet, moonlight, the sea washing on a sandy shore, these administer a healing balm, but they lack power to penetrate the inner recesses of the soul. A profound depth therapy is required to attain healing quietness and habitual repetition of this one text will in time permeate your personality with a complete sense of peace. And I do not doubt it. The divine presence that God wishes to give to us is one that has the possibility of reigning upon our lives and filling us to overflowing with the gift of comfort and also the gift of direction. You know the story that perhaps you heard in Sunday school? Do you remember that the drought was over? In the scripture, it's told just before the reading that was shared this morning. But as he was there on the mount and Elijah sends out a servant to look to see if there could be any rain, any let up from the drought. And the servant was sent out seven times and only it was the seventh time that the servant came back to Elijah and he said, I see in the distance on the horizon, I see a cloud no bigger than a man's hand. And Elijah got up and this is when he went to Ahab 
And surely he told Ahab, he said, you better get off this mountain because it's going to rain. And Ahab went back. And then it was in that encounter with his wife that he was trapped once again into thinking in her ways rather than thinking in Yahweh's way. There was a performance artist named Maria Abramovic, who is in the New York City Museum of Modern Art a few years back. And her offering in that setting was very simple. She got a table and two chairs, and she sat in one of the chairs. This went on for days, weeks, months, actually, that she would come and she would sit in one of those chairs and then she would welcome any of the visitors and there was a long line of visitors that took her up on this. She would welcome a visitor to sit at the other side of the table and then without saying a word, she would simply look into their eyes. Now the paper, as it reported what was going on, fascinated people that would come and sit for 30 seconds before Maria. But the thing that was so astounding was that many of the ones who looked into her eyes, who saw that she was fully attentive to who they were, left the table with tears streaming down their cheeks because she was making herself fully available to them. How is it that you feel in terms of Jesus's being present for you? Don't you know that he's there? Are we so scattered in our living that we do not look into the eyes of Christ as he's trying to look into our eyes? Do we miss the opportunity to be able to see that Jesus is the very expression of God's love? as he offers to us freedom from our greatest fears. He is this divine presence. Jean-Pierre de Casal, that French Jesuit priest of the 18th century, encouraged people to understand the sacrament of the present moment. And I ask you today, what are the difficulties of your life? Do they have control over you? Are you at a point of fear and even despair? And will you stop? Will you take a step to the edge of the mountain to be able to sense that sheer silence and the profound idea that God is there for you and will never abandon you. How can you welcome Jesus into your doubt? into your grief, into your fear.
Look into his eyes. 